This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. It's the Easter weekend, and uh, we're still here putting science out to you. We're going to play a really excellent interview with Captain Gene Cernan a little bit later in the show as part of the 50th year anniversary of the Apollo moon landings. But until then, we have some news for you. And in the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Happy long weekend. I know. It's great. And Dr. Lauren? Hello. Happy Easter. You're looking perky. I am. I was, I've already started eating chocolate. I'm just in preparation. <laughs> yeah, I bet you are. And Dr. Ray? Good day, Dr. Shane. I, I'm, I'm finally glad we're at this point because hot cross buns started in like January yeah, this year. Yeah, they did. Uh, and I loved it. I look yeah. forward to it being a year-round thing soon enough. <laughs> it's good stuff. So we're going to start off with some news. Uh, Dr. Lennon, what do you got for us? Well, I'm not sure if I would classify this as news. I guess it's something that I feel like maybe maybe many of you have heard the kind of story before, but I was thinking about things that we like to do this weekend on a long weekend, and I'm hoping that at least most of us will be able to get out and get out of the city lights and into the stars. You know, we it's the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and there will be, you know, lots of astro- astronomical stories being told. And so one story that I heard last year, I was lucky enough to go to the planetarium and uh, listen to some stories, some Indigenous ast- astronomical stories that really have changed the way that I look at the stars. Yeah. And I'm hoping that, you know, if you're getting out, out into the bush this weekend, you can have a look at the stars and see some of these stories. And the one that really stuck with me mm. has to do with Orion, or the saucepan, depending on who you are, or... Yeah. Depending on which, whether you're in the northern in or southern hemisphere. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's upside down otherwise. Yeah. Or if you're um, from the Great Victoria Desert, it has to do with a warrior whose name is, I'm definitely going to pronounce this incorrectly, Nairuna. Nairuna. So it's the same shape, the same orientation mm. as Orion. And he is a warrior, right? Mm. And a womanizer. And he was chasing these groups of sisters, chasing a group of sisters, the group, a cluster of stars that's sort of to the west mm-hmm. of um, Nairuna. So you imagine them sort of chasing each other night after night, rising in the east and setting in the west, and he would chase them. But they were being protected by their older sister, okay? And he would be furious. He wants to chase them. He wants to, you know, get these sisters. And he, he can't get them because the older sister is protecting them. And so he gets this fire and in his right hand and he builds up this fire and he tries to throw them at the big sister to get rid of the big sister so he can chase this group of sisters but she's like no way i'm not having that she builds up her own fire in her foot and she kicks dust at him she kicks dust in his eyes and he's hurt and he's in pain and he's ashamed and he's embarrassed and his fire dies it's this beautiful kind of Mm. traditional tale of these uh, and actually i think a lot of indigenous communities have or some have various variations of this sort of tale but Apart from the, the history and the information that's passed in here culturally, some researchers from Monash have been looking at how this is, also gives us information about variations in the brightness of stars mm. because the star uh, in Nehruma's right hand is, is Betelgeuse, right. mm. or it's known as Betelgeuse in Western astronomy. And it has a variation of being mm. bright and less bright of about 400 days. Yep. Right? Whereas the star in uh, the older sister's right foot represents the older sister right foot has another name that i can't remember but it has a longer variation of brightness and not uh, not being so bright i don't know the technical mm. term for that dr shane i'm sure you do variable stars variable stars there yep. we go there we go mm. and this information you know this story kind of says that his his fire gets brighter and less bright and hers gets brighter and less bright but at a different frequency so at some point she needs to bring out the second round of mm. uh, protection and get some dingo puppies to go and try and attack Neoruma so he can't um at- uh, can't get at her younger sisters and i don't know i heard this story last year at the planetarium yeah. and i can't really star signs don't really stick to me i can never remember them i can never remember which ones look like what but this tale it's a beautiful either. narrative yeah. and now i can see it when i look when i look up yeah. at the, at the, the interesting the night thing sky. too is that um we're not talking about the sky that we look at mm. i mean we've we've wrecked that with light pollution like mm. you you yeah. don't see that detail you couldn't see that detail from within the city or even even proximate to our major cities mm. and there's countries in the world where they now have rulings around the coverings of lights in the streets to prevent the light pollution from going up mm. but we don't have that in australia and and what you what you'd see i mean imagine you know ten thousand years ago a sky with zero light pollution mm. it is it is oh, quite extraordinary it's yeah. a very different so you know orion's belt yeah that's mildly interesting to me 
the great nebula in Orion that you can see with the naked eye on a really dark night if you're out in the country, mm. that's phenomenal oh, to that's look at. That would be, and that would be a very different view than what we see, you know, the, the boring-ass pinpricks that we... Yeah. Oh, sorry, did I say that? Um, you know, like, it's not the same. It's not the same. You don't see the detail and the colour um, that the eye would be no, able to see. No. So. You'd, you'd see night glow, too. Yeah, the yeah. Fluorescence yeah, you know, I mean, stuff. The, the atmosphere and stuff, yeah. you'd actually see very that, different. that gets drowned out. Yeah, oh, very wow, different amazing. Stuff, so. And just this idea that capturing this variability of the stars in these traditional uh, Indigenous science tales, you know, Indigenous science mm. is... Some interesting oh, data. It's amazing. Interesting data. Mm. Dr. Lauren. Well, while you're out camping and under the stars, um, given it's Easter weekend, you're probably going to be eating a lot of chocolate. And so I wanted to, to do a little bit of a rehash because this has been around for a long time about can we actually justify chocolate as a health food? Yeah, <laughs> of course we can. I knew you'd be on team yes. Yeah, I'm on team yes. Um, I know it's in it, so <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, no, 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 totally not. <laughs> so, look, I think the short answer is that there's definitely parts of the chocolate which are healthy, and the parts that we're talking about are the antioxidants. They're called flavon... I'm going to get this wrong now, flavonoids. Um, and the most important one for what we're talking about are flavanols. Now, these are antioxidants that are within the, the cocoa, and the cacao and basically they have been shown to give you some protection against cardiovascular problems heart attacks and things like that they have been shown to improve your psychological well-being even if they're not in chocolate it just the the compounds mm. themselves uh, they also are meant to help with things like stroke so the reason for this is that these antioxidants have anti-inflammatory properties uh, and they have you know again provided these sorts of uh, resistance to um, different issues in the body. So the interesting thing has been that there have been a few studies that are sponsored by Mars, uh, which surprises is in the confectionery company. <laughs> so surprisingly, they, they, they um, came back saying that, that, that chocolate itself was very good. Wait, um, wait, wait. Yeah. A chocolate company yeah. said chocolate yeah. is good for you. Surprising, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like tobacco. Yeah, I know, amazing. But mm. look, the, um, so it, it really has been a bit of a controversial area. And so a new study that's happening at the moment is uh, called the Cosmos trial and it's at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and they're actually trying to answer this question in over 22,000 people so it's a well-designed randomized double-blind placebo controlled trial and they're looking at a cocoa extract supplement so it's not unfortunately it doesn't seem like I'm like what's a placebo for a chocolate <laughs> yeah, bar a compound chocolate that's it, that's yeah. it exactly white yeah. chocolate white chocolate well actually do in a lot of these studies they use white chocolate as a, as a placebo because it doesn't have these flavonoids <laughs> that right? it's because so it's not chocolate white chocolate I'm, I'm Sorry to break anyone's heart that loves it, but it is not chocolate. <laughs> it has but none it of these. It is stuff. delicious. It is. I like it too. Thanks, Lyndon. <laughs> no, sorry. I'm very team dark chocolate. I disagree with you both on that. I just don't like the stuff in the middle. I'm, I'm white or oh, dark. Oh, just no feeling. It's the milk. It's the, no, no, the milky chocolates are oh, um, sort of so say, but really good solid dark chocolate. Yep. You know, 80% cocoa, yep. you know, all for it. Which is the healthiest. And, 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 the, the, and the white chocolate, just to balance out the yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, look, I think that the, um, the the very sad news about this is that the trial is having um, intake of 600 milligrams of the flavanols, and to get that, if you were eating milk chocolate, you'd actually have to eat about 1.2 kilos of no milk problem. chocolate. No <laughs> problem. A day. Yeah. A day? You can it's do Easter. It? People can do that. Yeah. Everyone's they getting their flavanols that. today. That's yeah. it. So if you're doing that today, then you're probably in a good level. So that they believe, and what they're hypothesizing is it'll help with heart health, also with memory loss... Um, um, macular degeneration and cataracts. So, wow. But no we'll discussion see. about the impacts of the associated sugar. Well, Don't that's please. it. No, look, they're very strong on this. They say oh, yeah. they are just testing the flavanols. They are not testing the sugar yeah. level. Well, look, you've you got to remember, chocolate has evolved over time, not quite as much as the night sky. Mm -hmm. But um, what's processed now in, in, in larger processed chocolate is uh, is not even the chocolate bars that they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And part of that is formulation to bliss point, which mm -hmm. is so much sugar and fat where you don't care and you don't taste. But but there is a lot more sugar and fat in in some in a lot of the commercial chocolates that there wasn't before. Yeah. So this this comments, hey, darker chocolate is healthier, really is about the fact that darker chocolate is doesn't have as much fat yeah. in it. It may have as much sugar now, and the, the dark chocolate overpowers it. From a cost standpoint, it's to the advantage of the companies to perhaps try to put less chocolate in because yeah. that's the most expensive mm. ingredient. Sugar is dirt cheap. Yeah. So 
depending on the quality of the chocolate you buy, could probably have some effect on the calorie intake and if it is a higher chocolate content. I'm not saying going out and eating chocolate because it's healthy. I, I think it is. <laughs> but but that follow-on about what we have as chocolate today is a little different. Now, for today, you know what? If you want that cheap chocolate or the, the gray cat or, or, or go for whatever Cadbury bar or Mars bar you want, go for it today. But... Um, <laughs> To me, the difference between cheap chocolates sometimes and is is the ones that melt in your mouth and are a little grainy because you know they haven't been tempered right, or or they don't melt when they should because they have emulsifiers in them, which are really similar chemically to the things that are in polyethylene. But uh, so you know, there's plenty of reasons not to eat bad chocolate. Yeah, um, I think that's the take home message, and it is from the science side of things. The nutritionists say, you know, eat it because you enjoy it. Eat it in small amounts. You know, understand there are some health benefits to some of the antioxidants, but don't claim that you're eating a health food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Easter yeah. is not about a health food. Yeah, not about a health food. About yeah. a bit of fun. Bit totally. Of fun. And you're not killing the fun, Doctor Lauren. I'm not well killing done. the fun you're at not all. The fun. Yeah. <laughs> Because I've seen the, I've seen you go nuts on an egg. Oh really. my gosh! Yeah, yeah. and all over your face, and we yeah. had to wipe you down. And it's, it's out of control. That's it, Doctor Ray. You know, figure out why rabbits lay eggs, though. That's part still. It's a whole different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, so, you got a video of it. It's fun to watch. Uh, there's a, there's an interesting story that's out there about Mars's evolution over time. It's climate change and what's happening. And there's been a, a recent study that spent a lot of time mapping, look at, looking at etched away riverbeds. And they came to a couple conclusions that are just confusing. Um, they found that there was an intense runoff period in, in Mars's climate, which fed rivers more than like 3 billion years ago, up to 1 billion years ago. They indicated the rivers were much wider than Earth rivers would be for the same size basins. Uh, and, and here's the confusing part. The geological evidence suggests this happened when Mars was losing its atmosphere. Mm. So it had a wet climate period based on these really strong runoffs and very deeply etched rivers at a period of time when it was losing its atmosphere. And for to have that type of liquid flow, you need some heat from somewhere, and they're a little fuzzy on where that came from. And when you're losing your atmosphere, you're kind of a little fuzzy about the evaporation problems, too, because water will evaporate then. Mm. So it's a really interesting study out of the University of Chicago, which kind of really starts to question exactly what we understand about the model for Mars's climate as it changed, as it lost its atmosphere. Mm. Why this is important, not just for Mars, is we use Mars a lot of times as like kind of a a lens into the past to try to understand our own climate. And so this is this is quite con- a bit of a conundrum. It was a really interesting study. Um, I was thinking about the water part. Why doesn't it evaporate? But then I realized if you have really salty water, way saltier than ours, you know, the vapor pressures like salt can really inhibit evapor- evaporation. I, I remembered that working with an atmospheric scientist once. I said, oh, we need to calibrate this humidity sensor at like 25 or 40 percent he goes oh just put lithium chloride in the water and saturate it it's vapor pressure like it doesn't evaporate nearly as easily and and i kind of went oh yeah so they're big salty rivers there's the potential for some Mm. for salt plus it's uh all that runoff water is you know where it was coming from they're still a little fuzzy on but it might have brought a lot of minerals because it was very geologically an intense runoff period Mm -hmm. and uh Mm-hmm. I kind of went, wow. I, so, so uh, that, I mean, that really, uh, we see, we've heard of a very careful study saying, hey, we think there was water, looking at different geological features, but this is like really has the potential to change mm-hmm. how, how we even understand Mars's climate mm-hmm. yeah. model and, around that and time. And good right? science in that it, ans- it brings out more questions than it answers, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and why do we care about water on Mars? Because if there's still some there, that would make things a lot easier if we yes. go there. So exactly. interesting stuff. Now, I've been uh, doing a few stories over the last month on um, dark matter and our mm-hmm. inability to find it. Mm-hmm. It's tough to find, folks, but... Um, one of the reasons we're looking for it is because if you look at galaxies out in the universe, so these are you know big accumulations of stars, and you look at how fast they rotate, and then you look at how fast they should rotate based on what you can see, you know, the, all, all the mass you can see, mm-hmm. well, they rotate the wrong speed. In fact, you need more mass to make them rotate that fast, and, and there's something missing, and that's what we call dark matter. There's the idea that there's something else there that's changing the rotation rate. And one of the things you can do is look at a globular cluster within a, a galaxy. So this is like a clustering of stars, sometimes you know, hundreds of thousands of stars, a lot of stars, but you know they form like a little cluster, and you can watch that rotate around, around the galaxy and work out how fast they're going. 
And this is all nice and good because every galaxy in the universe uh, that we've seen does exactly this. It rotates at the wrong speed and, and so forth. With the exception of NGC 1052DF2. My, oh, my personal they, found one, they found one that... Yeah. Oh, wow. My personal favourite. So there's a guy named Peter Van Dokken who's um, uh, the Professor of Astronomy at Yale, uh, and he has been looking at this particular... He and his students have actually been looking at this particular galaxy. And the interesting thing is when you look at the globular clusters in this galaxy, guess what? They rotate around the galaxy, at, or the galaxy rotates, at the rate you would expect from what you can see. No dark matter required. Naive question. This mm. is definitely not my area at all. How many galaxies go the wrong way versus the one that goes the right way? As in how many like, do this? Yeah. So far, the number found is two. Yeah. Both by the same group. Okay. Actually. And, in fact, the so the first one's called NGC 1052DF2, and the second one, amazingly, is called NGC 1052DF4. <laughs> it's um, the same group. It's the same group. Verify for, I mean, we're sure there's no microwave in the background. Yeah, when yeah, yeah, are... with the door open. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, so, look, this this is interesting because, as you might imagine, when the, the first study of this came out, which was the first one I just mentioned, uh, there was there was a bit pretty big pushback, and it was really interesting reading uh, this professor's commentary around how the community, the scientific community, responded to the paper that they put out. Because, of course, the data is the data, and the data says that in this particular case, you can account for the way in which this galaxy is operating without or without or with very little or an ins insignificant amount of dark matter. Mm. And this is problematic because there's no reason to expect that there, for some reason there's just no dark matter in these galaxies. I mean, this is mm. why are they so special? Why would there be one, you know, at that point they found one that yeah. just didn't have any dark matter. And he, it was interesting because he said that the range of commentary went from mm, interesting to, you know, outright abuse mm. in some cases. And they had to navigate, especially with students, as PhD students working on this, they had to navigate how to interact with various parts of the scientific community where, you know, even though no one has managed to demonstrate dark matter in a, you know, particle physics type experiment, the idea that it has to exist is pretty entrenched at this point, mm. at least theoretically. So to actually find examples of the universe that don't require it mm. um, is quite, quite fascinating. And the fact that they've now found a second galaxy that meets these same criteria is pretty fascinating. Mm. So I think it's one of those watch this space areas because we have to work out what it is about this part of the universe or this particular galaxy that doesn't require dark matter in order to operate. Every time you bring up dark matter, I enjoy asking a naive question. I did one a couple of weeks ago. I have a different one now. So dark matter is on a, a galaxy scale mass. We has to mm. be there. We don't see. Mm -hmm. I, I know it's a lot of mass, but is there any chance we've misestimated how voidish the bits are between space? I mean, we always think it's a stray atom or two there. But what if? I mean, it's hard to measure quantities there spectroscopically, and it's such a vast area. Could we have? Is, is there some mass balance there? There's there's a little bit more in the void than we've attributed, and that's a, not all of, but a significant fraction. There. Yeah, so uh, I think the thing is there is the, the answer really is is no. And the, and the reason for that is that there's a, there's a number of ways you can work out the mass of galaxies. One is just by the amount of light produced by them, and, and we know what standard sorts of stars are in terms of light production and so forth. Second is with the technique known as gravitational lensing. So if you, if you take light from something behind that galaxy and watch how it goes around the galaxy, this is Einstein's work of general relativity, mm. the light gets bent. And it gets bent depending on how massive the okay. object is or the galaxy is. And so we actually have these really amazing sort of intergalactic scales that we can put these galaxies on and just measure, measure how much mass is in them. And when you look at that and you look at how much is missing, it's a very significant amount. I mean, one, one of the things that often comes up when, when people ask me this question is, but you, you won't be able to see all the planets that are in that galaxy. And that is absolutely true. Mm. But if you think of the mass of planets in a, in a star system relative to the star itself, mm. that number is pretty small. You know, the, the, the mass of the Earth relative to the mass of our sun, don't worry about it. You know, yeah. It's so small. Yeah. So the amount missing is so large that you can't account for it by other things. I mean, one possibility is that we just don't understand the universe that well and the way the universe operates. But everything else that we do... Every other measurement we do, our understanding of you know general relativity, our understanding of how stars live, die, grow old, and so forth, all works. And gravity waves, even. Yeah, gravity waves. And so, so we are so good at all of that. We've got so much of that right in astronomy and, and cosmology that this piece is really puzzling. Like, how could we have this bit? How could we be missing 85% of the universe in terms of its mass? Are we that wrong? And, and it's hard to fathom that. 
Whereas what we do know is that there are a lot of particles in that. If you, if you trail back 50 or 100 years and you think about particles that we now know about, like neutrinos from the sun, for example, that change what type of neutrino they are as they travel. So there's three, three types of neutrinos and they tra- change as they travel, but they pass right through us. You know, mm. hundreds of millions of them a second passing through us and we don't know they're there. And we think, well, okay, if we don't know that and we have such little understanding of that part of the universe, maybe there's something else that we don't see that doesn't interact with our matter in the same way. Neutrinos pass right through us. It's very hard to detect them because they pass through us. But maybe there's something else that passes through us or is around us as well that we can't detect. Dark matter is probably one of those sorts of particles. So it's it's high-end particle physics. You know, it's the reason we're building things like you know the Large Hadron Collider and so forth, because it's tough. Can I just say, I'm going to be so devastated if we actually answer all these questions. Because oh, how magic is fun? it? Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, every time you talk about this, my mind explodes, you know, that we're talking about things we can't see, they move through yeah. us. It, you, know, I, it's ma- you know, it's almost magic in a way, so... You know, keep working on it, everyone, but just don't answer everything. Just leave it going just for a while. And if you find it, just me. bury it for a few yeah, years until Lauren's it. gone. Exactly. <laughs> then you can publish your nature papers. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun. Three. Triple. I'm Dr. Shane, and my guest today is Captain Gene Cernan, NASA astronaut on Gemini 9A, Apollo 10, and commander of Apollo 17. Captain Cernan was the human being who last stepped on the moon in 1972. Also in the studio with me is Peter Aylward, President of the Space Association Australia. Captain Cernan, thank you very much for making the time to speak to us today, and I should say a belated happy birthday for last week. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure... uh it's a pleasure being here, and uh, those birthdays are coming all too quick lately. I can imagine. <laughs> now, we're very excited about your upcoming tour of Australia and the launch of the movie, The Last Man on the Moon, which is directed by Mark Craig. Can you give us a bit of an idea? What should audiences expect from this film? Well, I don't want to give the movie away. My intent, hopefully... Uh, well, can I back up just a little bit? I, uh, I really uh, uh, was really not... <laughs> supporting their their approach. It took them a long while to uh, Mark Craig and Mark Stewart to talk me into doing this. I couldn't uh, figure out why anyone would want to be interested in a, meal, in, a, in a movie about me. And finally, they convinced me that it was worth doing. They both read my book by the same name. The book is a little different, although it's, it, it takes the personal uh, approach like the movie does. Not... Uh, it's really not technological at all. And uh, they both liked it, and, and finally I was convinced that uh, it really wasn't a movie. It wasn't about me. It was about uh, a young kid from any town, USA, maybe any town in the world, who uh, had a dream going way back to World War II to fly, to fly airplanes off aircraft carriers. And, and that, that dream was actually uh, contagious and... and uh, um, and then it, it, it was about, it, put it this way, it, they convinced me it was a movie to inspire young people to dream, to do things they didn't think they could do. And once they got me on that path, uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe I owe something to this next generation. Hmm. Look, it, uh, I watched it on Friday night with my wife. It's a, it's a fabulous film, and it's not just young people who are uh, inspired to dream with this film either. I was I was quite inspired by it. G- give us an idea of how long it took to put together, because as you said, this is not a technical film. It is a deeply personal film, and I have to say, having watched it, I I feel as though I in a way know you now. Well, you're awful kind with your words, and and that was the intent. Uh, quite honestly. Uh, because you know we weren't we weren't Superman who came out of the golden sky with a big silver cape. We're just normal people. Uh, put our pants on one leg at a time, and and I think people needed to understand who we were, what we were, what we believed in. Uh, we have families. We have kids. Uh, we grew up uh, from um, you know different means, and uh, you know my parents, uh, quite frankly, uh, were were very blue collar. I never was wanting for anything. Came from uh, immigrant grandparents, and I grew up in a big city. And uh, and my dream, which was, as I say, to fly airplanes, was stimulated by those unsung heroes in uh, World War II. We didn't have television, and I know young people find it difficult to 
understand that, but uh, we got the news and, uh, you know, black and white film at the movie theater about once a week. And uh, those unsung heroes of World War II, the Battle of Midway, those guys, they they inspired me to do what I knew I never would be able to do because that dream was completely out of reach for me at that point in time. But you know what? It happened, and here I am. And why can't it be uh, every young kid uh, in the world if they really want to do something badly enough? Mm. It's good, good advice. Now, give us an idea, Captain, why you decided to, to do this now. Because, as you said, it's been quite some years since you put the book out, um, but you've brought the film out now. What, what took so long for the, this to sort of come about? Well, Mark Craig, uh, the director, came to me about how oh, it is his idea. Uh, it took a long time for me to get the book out, too. It took about 25 years until someone convinced me that uh, the things they've been hearing me say ought to be uh, ought to be read or heard by other people. And, and then Mark came to me about, uh, golly, it's been probably seven, eight years ago, with the idea. And, and I, uh, you know, I've been sold a lot of swamps in the desert in my lifetime, and I figured I don't, I don't need another one. It's uh, Peter here. Uh, I, I too saw the movie in preview and I was absolutely blown away by the photography and the images that were in there. Um, just want to ask you a quick question. The, the, the film is, is a very personal story from your perspective. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the most important and meaningful thing to come out of human spaceflight as opposed to unmanned spaceflight, and more specifically uh, from the Apollo program, in your opinion? Well, you know, we can talk about uh, all the technological spin-offs certainly important but the uh, technology technology of Apollo and we couldn't have done it uh, you know at that point in time without people literally creating the technology that, that we needed when the president said uh, 
learning to do, and we certainly made our measure of mistakes along the way. And it cost us, without question, it cost us. But when you look back, the technology of Apollo is, uh, I think, is already obsolete, uh, overshadowed by time. These young kids have got more, more technology, more, more memory in their in their iPhones than I had in both of my hands when I landed on the moon. Hmm. Uh, and so, and the, and the questions people get, people ask all the time, are are are, are really. Uh, how did it feel? What did it look like? Were you scared? Did you feel you wouldn't come home? Uh, what do you do when you don't, you know, when you're not out on the road? What's your family like? And, and on and on, but they were all questions. I like to compare it if, uh, you know, if you had uh, Neil Armstrong and, uh, and uh, Christopher Columbus in the same room at the same time right now. I really believe you'd ask about the same questions. How did you feel? Did you think you wouldn't get back? Did you think you'd fail sail off the flat earth? How did you feel when you first stepped on the moon and saw land? Those are the things people want to know. And, uh, and, and when you look back, what do I think the most important thing is? I guess we're getting right back to where we started. It's the inspiration of people, and you said it earlier, not just young people, but young and old, to do what they didn't believe was possible. Uh, we had uh, the whole world believing we could do it uh, after we got after it for uh, for a few years. Uh, people got on board, and, 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 and I guess I was one of those guys once I got selected for the program. And, and you get involved, and, and you believe you don't believe you can't do it. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. And the next thing you know, you're, you're standing on a moon and you've done it. Mm-hmm. And it still seems unreal. It still seems magical. It, it still seems to some degree like it's a dream. Um, you know, some kind of science fiction dream. And you find yourself in this unbelievable place. And you pinch yourself, am I really here at this moment in space and time and history? And the fact of life is... It's real. You've done it, and 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 if if I can do it, if I can do it, there's no reason every young boy, every young girl, every young man, every young woman in the in the world can't do something like this. And as a matter of fact, we owe it to future generations to explore. Mm. Uh, we 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 literally owe it to open the doors to the future, uh, because. You know, otherwise you wither and die. If you don't grow as a as a as humanity, uh, where do you go? What happens? Mm. Captain Sand, uh, it's it's interesting. You, you you speak so much in many of your interviews about inspiring the young and so forth. So one of the things I did meet midweek was I uh, contacted a very dedicated uh, elementary school primary uh, primary school teacher that we um, that I know of here in Melbourne, and I asked her to challenge her class of uh, grade three students. So these are seven and eight year olds. Um, to come up with a couple of questions for you because I thought it would oh, be great, good great. good for you to hear from them. Um, so this is the, the group from Tellers Lakes Primary School in Miss Emma Herbert's class, 3EH, and they... They actually, I asked them for two or three questions, and they gave me a list of twenty-five. So I've picked out a, a couple for you. <laughs> See what I mean? Yeah, they, they love it. Well, the excitement, the excitement, and the interest in young kids, it, and it's really not hard to to uh, create that 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 passion, that inspiration in their hearts and minds. They're ready. This future generation is much a part uh, of of what we did as we were at the time and they could do it again indeed and, and they they actually uh, they got a little bit of an apollo lesson before coming up with these questions which i think is great and um their first question that i've selected was when you were in space was it extremely dark dark yeah oh no as a matter of fact yes and no you know it's there's a lot of paradoxes uh, when you go to the moon we were in daylight the whole time. Uh, you used the word dark. I use the word blackness. Uh, darkness is when you're in a shadow, uh, in our case, here on Earth or on the moon, of the sun. That's that's darkness. When
when you're in shadow and we were in sunlight we lost at darkness from the earth on apollo 17 and that was because of where we were landing but soon we came into sunlight and once we left the earth we were in sunlight all the way to the moon until we came into the shadow of the moon we got we got the moon between the sun and us and we were then in darkness but when you look back at the earth and you look through that sh sunshine and this is the paradox and you look through that sunshine and there's nothing for the sun to, sh to shine on except maybe the earth itself the multicolor blues of the oceans and whites of the snow and the cloud and everywhere else along you could look just a skosh alongside the earth and you are peering into the deepest blackness that you can conceive in your mind i didn't say darkness you're looking through sunlight and you're peering at a three-dimensional blackness i call it the endlessness of space and the endlessness of time there's nothing there there's nothing for the sun to shine on so it is totally black Mm. Uh, the the other question they had for you was um, how big were the craters on the moon? I, I think a, a lot of people have the, the wrong impression of just the size of things on the moon. Uh, that's you know, what size would you like? We, uh, you know, there's craters the size of football fields. There's craters probably the size I won't say quite maybe the size of continents, but uh, but maybe pretty close. Uh, we landed in a valley. Uh, that had mountains on three sides higher than a Grand Canyon is deep, to give you some idea. Now, the other side of that coin is when you're in a lunar rover uh, and you're in one-sixth gravity and you're driving and you hit a crater, maybe a crater the size of three or four feet wide, it, you're up in the air again. Uh, so you've got small craters, little potholes, little potholes, and big, gigantic what you'd recall, maybe you have to call valleys because they're almost not recognizable as craters because they're so big. Mm -hmm. Now, a uh, question with regards to the sort of time that's passed and so forth, uh, Captain Sen. It's been almost 45 years since you walked on the moon, and at the time it seemed as though Kennedy, as you said, said it's an impossible goal. Do we have a similar sort of goal today, or have we lost something? Well, I don't think we've lost the enthusiasm, and I don't think we've lost the will and desire of most people, um, particularly young people. And the program here in the, in, in the States has always been, it's been a bipartisan program since the days of, of Sputnik and Gagarin and certainly uh, from the first flight of Al Shepard. And it, 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 it is today. It, it, I, we have, Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell, and I, had testified three different times in front of Congress, and I can promise you, those ladies and gentlemen are just as excited as most other peoples over what we've done, even though they may have been not born in some cases or, or young school children at the time. So it's a very bipartisan attitude. The problem is, just like everything else, we need leadership. We need a Kennedy. We need someone who's bold. We need someone who can challenge the nation. Oh, I know it costs money, and if you don't have the money, you can't do it. Well, it's not so much money you have, it's how you spend it. I'm not sure, and I don't, I, I can't even think back that far right now, what our, what our, um, our budgets were back in uh, 61 when Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon. But he found this world in the 60s, this country, let me put it that way. He found this country in sad shape. We were we were um, at campus unrest, civil stripes, burning West Los Angeles down. Uh, we were at the beginning of a very, what became a very, very unpopular war. The Russians owned space. They put Sputnik, Gagarin, and I could put the grand piano in space if they wanted to, and and we were left with little or nothing because our 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 vehicles, our satellites, our spaceships were were, were falling into the ocean out of, off Kennedy, off of uh, Cape Kennedy. It was a sad state of. I call it the terrible sixties. Most people uh, today in the forties and fifties don't really remember that because they were too young or life was moving too fast as a teenager. They didn't pay much attention to it. But Kennedy, whether he was a visionary, uh, um, 
bold, visionary, a dreamer, politically astute. He indeed was bold, and he saw this country needed something. And here's two things to think about. By the end of that decade, 1968, we not only did the impossible, we we orbited three human beings around the moon in 1968 on Christmas Eve. That was the answer to his bold challenge, the beginning of the answer to his bold challenge. And, you know, without that kind of leadership, without someone who's willing to be accountable, without someone who's willing to be responsible for what's important to them, we're never going to do it again. Now, having said that, will we do it again? Yes, we will go back to the moon. We will go to Mars. We had a program to do that uh, seven, eight years ago, which was canceled by the president administration. And it's, it's a sad state of affairs because literally we could be on our way right now. Yeah, Gene, um, uh, back to Peter. Um, I just want to go back to your film, if I may. Um, in the uh, film, we, we learned something about you that uh, I believe that... Uh, you did something not no other astronaut had ever done in declining a seat to to be on Apollo 16 to walk on the moon. Could you tell us about that? That's the biggest risk I ever took uh, uh, in a space program, maybe maybe in my life, as far as you know, turning down an opportunity like that. Yeah, I uh, I had flown Gemini Nine, I uh, uh, flew uh, Apollo 10. I was back up on an earlier Apollo flight. I backed up. Alan Shepard in the in the command seat on uh, on uh, Apollo 14. Why I had the courage to do that, I'll never know. But you're right. I had an opportunity to fly on the moon. Uh, actually, a flight before Apollo 17, but it would have been from the right seat. Why was that important? And my boss couldn't believe it. Deke Slayton said, "You're turning down." And he never really guaranteed anything, but he almost did this time. You're turning down a chance to walk on the moon for a flight uh, in the left seat, uh, for a, a seat as a commander of a spacecraft for a flight that may never come about. Or if it does, you may not be selected to sit in that seat. And I told him yes, and i and I tell you why. I... It's not that I felt that I was better than anybody else. It's not that I felt that uh, I earned it more than anybody else. But I had to prove, given a chance, I had to prove to myself um, that I was good enough to do it, that I was good enough to command a flight and be successful that landed on the moon. Uh, You know, I've been an underdog. As I said earlier, I didn't apply for the program. only because I didn't meet all their qualifications, flight time, and test pilot school. And I had to prove something to myself. Given a chance, I had to prove something, not to you, but but, but to myself. And when I stepped on the moon, uh, the first steps had already been taken, but those were my steps, and nobody could take them away from me at that point in time, or even today. And uh, it was then that I proved to myself, I can do it, and I did it. And don't ask me. I mean, it, it was a risky. It was a risky decision on my part uh, because you know I've always said fate has a big hand in uh, where you end up in this world, and uh, it sure did on this occasion. I I thought I'd almost rip my knickers uh, and never would fly again. It's a fascinating fascinating insight into into you as a person, uh, Captain Sermon. So, how long between you declining that? that seat on Apollo 16 and being uh, uh, appointed for the commander role of Apollo 17 was the, was it. That must have been a very stressful, lie-awake-at-night type of period for you. Well, you know, even when I I, I got the assignment as uh, backup commander on Apollo 14, I had absolutely no assurance, assurances of any kind that I'd, I'd fly an Apollo flight again, much less being a left seat on Apollo 17. I, I, I go back I go back to the why me, and I said this in my book, and I don't take it back. I said, if I were my boss, and I was competing against Dick Gordon, a highly qualified, good friend of mine, highly qualified guy, commander of Apollo, could have been commander of Apollo 17. Plus, it was decreed that we would, we, would, we had one lunar geologist in a program in 
and he was on the uh, on, on Dick Gordon's backup crew for 15, and he was going to fly. Wow. There was no doubt he was going to fly. Uh, we knew it, and why? Why would you break up a crew like like Dick did and fly me and Ron Evans and put Jack on our crew? I don't know why me. I don't know, but I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know. I just thank God that he made that decision. I won't don't know what <laughs> stirred him on to do it, but uh, you go out and do. It. My dad said, my dad always used to say, just go out and do your best, and someday you're going to surprise yourself. He was right. That's fantastic. Good advice. Good advice. Uh, Captain, uh, there's a lot of activity at the moment with regards to the International Space Station, but I wanted to ask you a question that anyone who's been on board that station won't be able to answer, and that is what is the real difference between the experience you get in sort of low Earth orbit and actually being in, in what we would refer to as, you know, deep space, outer space? Two words exploitation of space. In other words, we're going to take what we learn and we're going to exploit space to our advantage versus uh, um, uh, exploitation versus, versus uh, ex expanding our knowledge, exploration of space. And, and going, back, going back to the moon or going on to Mars or whatever, and what we did on Apollo 10 and 17 was the exploration of space. There's a tremendous difference. What we're doing on a space station, we hope does benefit us someday, and I believe it will. But we're exploiting. We're exploiting the benefits of near-Earth orbit, the zero gravity, the vacuum, and near-vacuum of space. And there's a tremendous difference going where man has never gone before, seeing what has never been seen with human eyes before. That's exploration of space. Mm. Now, what, one other question I have for you here is with regards to, I guess, similar, related to a question you must always get, which is what was it like to be on the moon? But what I want to know is what was it like when, when you actually came back? I mean, how were you changed? <clears throat> well, I'd like to believe I haven't, but uh, undoubtedly I haven't somewhere in one or another one. When I went out to the moon on Apollo 10, and you watch the Earth recede to something as, you know, you can literally cover with the palm of your hand. And like Apollo 13, uh, you could cover the Earth with your thumb. Uh, that's, your, that's your real world. That's reality. That's where the past the future is. You look back at that Earth and it doesn't tumble through space. It was, moves with purpose and logic uh, beyond your conception. It, it, every 12 hours, it, 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 it rotates on an axis you can't see, but you know must be there with order. And, and you're looking at the other side of the world. It just was too beautiful to have happened by accident. And to me, on, after I came back from Apollo 10, I, uh, and, and I'm not talking religion, I'm talking about a spiritual difference between Earth orbit flight and going somewhere. Uh, and then you come back and you never forget what you saw. Went back on Apollo 17, went one step further, went out of Earth orbit, down to uh, the surface of the moon, and I, I think I said in the uh, in the movie, and I, I've used the phrase quite often because it's the only way I can really explain it. Hopefully, if you use your imagination, you can find yourself there. I I literally sat on God's front porch, looking back at the small piece of the universe which He created. So I, I came back without question believing that this earth, this world, this universe has a creator, a creator that is behind its making. Now, has that changed my life? Um, does that, quote, mean I have to go to church every day or every Sunday or whatever? I don't think so. I don't think so. But that image, that feeling, that thought, that knowledge, uh, I could never, I could never undo. Uh, Gene, we're just about out of time here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, just one question. You're on your way to Australia shortly. Um, we're looking forward to seeing you and, of course, your movie. One thing that you probably are aware of uh, uh, is that Australia, uh, back in the 60s and continuing to this day, has a, 
a, a fairly small but very critical role in the Deep Space Network. Were you, as part of your duties uh, uh, in your missions, aware of the Australian involvement at Honeysuckle Creek, at Tidman Billa, at, at Carnarvon and uh, New Norcia uh, oh, in Australia? Yeah. And is there anything you'd like to say to the people that work there? Because there'll be a number of those people at your movies, I'm sure. Uh, let me tell you, we couldn't have done what we did without Australia. Uh, God, God put that that creator put Australia in the right place, uh, and uh, you know it was. It, it, you know, I love Australia. I'm really anxious to get back to the people back there. Are so wonderful. They're as much. You are all as much a part of the space program as we were. I've always said we weren't in that spacecraft alone, and and I believe it because I think anyone who had anything to do with it, anyone who put a bolt in the heat shield, anyone who who who, who worked with us from the surface from Perth or anywhere uh, was on that board that spacecraft uh, with us. I can remember one time on my on Gemini Nine, I had a lot of trouble with my. Uh, well, we we I just my workload, my heart rate. I overpowered the the uh, um, cooling system in the in the spacecraft. My visor became fogged. I was outside a spacecraft day and night. A couple revolutions around the Earth, and one time I I knew I knew I had to be over Australia, and I took my nose and I rubbed a little a, a little hole in the fog so I could see through the uh, through the uh, helmet through the visor and sure enough there were the lights of Australia <laughs> and that gave me a level of comfort that you cannot I, I don't know if you can relate to it or not but it was significant to me yeah yeah, I can yeah. Captain Sam as I mentioned uh, I, I did watch the movie on Friday with my wife and uh, of course she's the most important critic I, I can I can trust and at the end of the movie, I just wanted to relate to her to you her comment. Um, she just came out with a very short sentence, and she just said, "What a gorgeous man!" So that's the effect I think the film will hopefully have on many people. Oh, you're you're, you're kind. I'd sure like to meet her. <laughs> I'm not sure I should allow that. <laughs> uh, we, well, we hope you're too kind. I do I do appreciate your words. I I, I can't. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, look, we uh, the reception the movie's seen, but when you say those kind of words, it just blows me away. I, I just had no idea. Well, we, we're absolutely blown away by the career that you've had, and I have to say it has been an absolute privilege and an honour for Peter and I to speak to you today, and we very, very much are looking forward to your visit in May this year to Australia. Well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing you folks, and, uh, and uh, we'll... Uh, We'll do what we have to do. We can talk about it. We can do whatever we need to do about it. But uh, warm up the weather just a little bit for us. We'll do our best, although that could be a, a little tricky. We're moving into winter. Thanks so much, and we will see you in a short time. Okay, very good. Safe Thank travels. You Thank you, Captain. Bye Thank Bye you. Bye-bye. Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Dr. Linden, good to see you. Good to see you too, Dr. Shane. Enjoy your chocolate afternoon. I will. Dr. Lauren, good yeah, to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. And everyone has a wonderful long weekend. Yep. And Dr. Ray? Uh, have a lovely long, long weekend. Folks, uh, we'll chat to you again uh, next week. Remember, science is everywhere. And have a wonderful Sunday. Uh, thanks for listening to RRR. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.